Welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast crew, where today we're moving forward with episode 35, The Eve of War. Last episode, we concluded with a discussion about how ostracism became a common tool that was wielded by the people of the Athenian democracy in the wake of their victory at Marathon. Themistocles managed to dodge the hammer blow of this democratic tool, but as he continued to push for his vision of a powerful Athenian navy, other politicians rose to oppose him. We also concluded last time by noting the fact that Xerxes had assumed the Persian throne in 486 BCE after the death of his father, Darius. So, now that we've found the thread ends that we put down last time, let's pick them back up and continue to weave the story as it has come down to us. Perhaps the thread to begin with today is the one concerning Xerxes. We mentioned last time that immediately following his accession to the throne, Egypt revolted against Persian control. Thus, instead of being able to continue his father's focus on punishing Athens and Sparta for their victory on the plains of Marathon and at other points previous, Xerxes was forced to divert his attention to Egypt. There, he successfully quelled the rebellion. Three years later, though, he was again forced to quell a rebellion in Babylon, but it would seem, based on a reading of Herodotus, that at the same time, which was probably in 43 BCE, Xerxes had rather quickly set a large contingent of workmen to task on a project that would both prepare the way for their still-planned invasion of Greece, but that would also just intimidate the Greeks through the sheer audacity of the project that Xerxes was attempting to pull off. You see, Herodotus says that, quote, at least three years before Xerxes launched his invasion of Greece, close quote, he started this project that he hoped would help his naval forces avoid the rocky and treacherous shores around Mount Athos, the very same shores where a substantial portion of a previous Persian fleet had been wrecked during a failed invasion prior to Marathon. So then, you must be asking, what was this project that Xerxes set his workmen about? You might assume that it was related to finding a different route to sail, or something along more practical lines. But given that we are talking about the Persian king here, he came up with an idea so grandiose that it would simultaneously give his ships a new route to sail toward Greece, but also show the Greeks that nothing could stand in the way of Persia, not even the land itself. To directly describe what Xerxes did here then, he tasked his engineers and what was probably a massive crew of slave laborers with digging a canal across the peninsula that connected the mainland to Mount Athos itself, as it sat jutting out into the northern Aegean. This was to give the Persian fleet a way to avoid sailing around the mountain, as we said, but the peninsula was two kilometers wide at the spot where they did eventually choose to dig. As if two kilometers were not a wide enough distance to have to bisect already, 
Xerxes commanded that the canal be wide enough for two triremes to pass through side by side. Herodotus famously says that the canal project as a whole, but especially this double-width requirement, was a sign of the arrogance of Xerxes, that he did it out of the desire to leave a monument to his empire's power. After all, Corinth had long used a diokos in similar circumstances, where ships were dragged a short distance overland with the aid of rollers and tracks. So surely the Persians could have done something similar here, and probably saved themselves years worth of trouble. Regardless of the personal motivations of Xerxes, the Persians did spend three years digging this canal through the Athos Peninsula. There's evidence of the canal still today, although it has been buried under sediment buildup through the intervening centuries. The evidence that's been studied does, however, seem to confirm all the figures given by Herodotus, even down to his detail about how the canal was engineered and adapted during the construction process. He says that when the laborers began to dig the canal, they immediately tried to make the bottom as wide as the top which sounds good in theory, but it's practically impossible if all you're doing is digging and not really building any kind of support for what will be the walls of the canal. The depth that the workers were aiming for, and the one that's been confirmed by modern study, was around 3 meters deep, so about 10 feet. That depth would have been more than enough for a trireme with a draft of even a meter and a half, and the modern Olympias reconstruction of a trireme had a draft of only 1.25 meters, so the depth of the canal wasn't a problem for any ships that would want to row through. But when you're digging in soil to a depth of 3 meters over such a wide distance, the walls or the banks of the canal are going to keep caving in. That's just pure physics. Of course, I didn't run any formulas or calculations here, so if we do have any civil engineers out there, let me know if this is indeed true across the board. I could picture the walls being stronger or weaker depending on the type of soil that you're digging in or other local conditions, but in general, you can picture how a canal being dug at such a great scale, the walls just wouldn't hold up without any support structure. Now, Herodotus is the source that we're looking to for this claim that the walls kept caving in. He says that as the Persian workmen dug the canal, that the walls did indeed keep caving in. And the only thing that overcame the problem was Phoenician ingenuity. Their solution to this problem was to take advantage of the power of the pyramid, if you will. And no, that's not some kind of sad catchphrase that was dreamed up by the marketing department of a gas station chain or something like that, although it does kind of sound like it would be a corporate catchphrase. Anyway, the Phoenician solution was to leave the bottom of the canal at the width it was supposed to be, which was 20 meters or about 66 feet. This would leave plenty of room for two triremes to row through side by side, since the triremes probably would have had a beam of about five and a half meters, or 18 feet, 
with some additional width needed for the oars that extended out from either side of the ships. So we said the bottom of the canal was 20 meters, but the pyramid catchphrase is connected to this Phoenician solution, and their solution was to gradually widen the walls of the canal as they rose up to the top, such that the top banks of the canal were 30 meters wide on average, or about 98 feet. This angling of the walls solved their problem of the walls caving in, and if we just imagine digging a well or something similar three meters down into the ground, I think it's a little easier to envision why the walls would cave in if they were just purely 90 degrees up to the surface and had no support to keep the gravel or the dirt from collapsing inward. I will post a few pictures related to the canal on the show notes page for this episode. Uh, one of them, if I remember correctly, is an aerial view of Mount Athos, just to give you a sense of how, uh, how wide the canal was, but also how imposing this mountain is as it towers over the sea there, and as the Persian fleet would have had to navigate around it with the rocky, windswept coasts all the way around there. I will also post a cross-section of the canal that helps give a better visual of the measurements and how this type of canal would have looked and worked in action. A few closing thoughts, and we can go ahead and move on from the canal here. The first one relates to the description that Herodotus gives us, both of the construction process and the size and location of it. The canal was pretty much abandoned as soon as the Persians sailed their last ship through the western opening, and although that is giving a bit away as it concerns the Greco-Persian War overall, I think you guys basically know how this war comes to an end. I don't feel like I'm dropping a major spoiler on you. If you will, that episode aired about 2400 years ago so I don't feel too guilty about hinting as to how it may have ended. Anyhow, since the canal was effectively abandoned, it was pretty quickly covered by sediment, exposed to sea surge on both ends as it was. So, even within a few hundred years of the war, ancient geographers and writers were already questioning the veracity of Herodotus, on the existence of the canal, anyway. It only got worse as the years advanced, so historians down through time have pointed to the canal story as evidence of how Herodotus played it loose with the facts. I personally always treated his anecdotes and asides with, you know, a somewhat skeptical eye. But with the canal evidence still in existence today, and with a lot of the other evidence that I've been reading through in preparing these episodes, I've come to give Herodotus a little bit more benefit of the doubt, just like many historians and academics do today. There are other modern discoveries and reassessments, and they've all cast a somewhat kinder light on the historian from Halicarnassus and what he claimed took place back during the Greco-Persian War. The final parting thought that I want to share in connection with this canal is in relation to the time that it took to build. 
Herodotus says that it was being built for at least three years before the ultimate Persian invasion, which we know occurred in 480 BCE. So it seems that the canal was being constructed in its early stages at least, as far back as 483, maybe even 484. Either way, the Persians had arrived in force in the regions north of Greece proper by virtue of starting to construct this canal. We're told that Egyptians and Phoenicians both participated in the project, but Xerxes also forced local Greeks into working on it as well. The main point that I'm driving at here is that the Athenians and even the Spartans would have been painfully aware of the Persian presence and project going on to their north, even if it was far to the north, and technically in the ancient region of Macedonia. The functional concern for the Greeks was that Persia had a substantial presence in an area far west of the Bosporus, well into Europe proper. They were working on a project meant to further their invasion, too. Despite all of this being the case, it's a little unclear how worried the Athenians actually were, especially back in 484 BCE. So to try and get a better grasp of how the Athenians and the Spartans, the other Greeks as well, to get a better grasp of how they may have been concerned with Persian activity to their north, let's go ahead now and transition into an examination of how they were getting on while Persia was busy digging that canal. The main source for these events is still Herodotus, as it has been for a while for us. But following the Battle of Marathon, there's a little bit of a lull in the narrative that he gives us. We can glean a few bits and pieces from other sources, but none of them are very remarkable, so let's take this quote from Plutarch, which I would say is pretty indicative of what Themistocles was up to in the years between the Battle of Marathon and 483 BCE. Plutarch writes, quote, now, the rest of his countrymen thought that the defeat of the barbarians at Marathon was the end of the war, but Themistocles thought it to be only the beginning of greater contests, and for these he anointed himself, as it were, to be the champion of all Hellas, and put his city into training, because while it was yet afar off, he expected the evil that was to come. It's clear then that Themistocles did not change his mindset even in the wake of victory at Marathon. I personally like that translation of Plutarch because it says that Themistocles anointed himself to put his city into training for the Persian invasion, the one that he felt in his very bones would eventually appear again on the horizon where the Aegean met the sky. The insinuation in this quote, as I see it, comes in the phrasing that he anointed himself, and that he was willing to put his city into training, but there's the implication that Athens didn't automatically anoint him with the power to do so, nor were the people willing to be put into training themselves. Well, not all of the people were willing anyway. It's clear from the ultimate resolution of events that Themistocles envisioned Athens constructing a navy of over 200 triremes along with a new fortified harbor at Piraeus. 
We've seen how during and after the events of Marathon that Athens had a fleet of around 75 triremes strong, nothing to sniff at at all. In comparison to the numbers contained in the Persian fleet, though, 75 looked pretty paltry. We also saw how the fortification of Piraeus was only partially completed when the Persians were facing off with the Greeks at Marathon, and when they then tried to outrace the victors back to Athens, Persia arrived at Athens just to find that they had lost the race. Persia then sailed back home in defeat, but following the Greek victory at Marathon, it seems from all indications that they were lulled into a sense of security, that they rested on the laurels they had won at Marathon. None of this is spelled out explicitly, but we can read between the lines to deduce that in 483 BCE, the Piraeus walls had still not been completed, and that Athens hadn't really supplemented her navy with any more triremes beyond those 75 that they had back at Marathon, and it's entirely possible that some of those ships had aged out of usefulness. If they had been well-maintained, I suppose they would have still been useful seven years later in 483, but it's really hard to estimate these things. Anyhow, the bottom line is that from 490, when Marathon occurred, down through 483 BCE, Themistocles continued to voice his opinion that Athens needed to take affirmative steps to prepare for the coming invasion. I've said before, but there are very Churchillian tones in scenes like this. Similar to Churchill and the situation in the build-up to World War II, most people in the country or the city-state of Themistocles chose to ignore his warnings. Many of them probably thought that he was just a glory-seeking politician. Others of them thought maybe that he just had a thirst for war. Whatever they did think, he didn't possess the most stellar of reputations. He was known as being a somewhat wily and effective politician who basically just knew how to pull the levers of power, which is an art, or a skill, or maybe both, depending on your view. But it's one that sometimes called for the lawyer's ability to fit the facts to his narrative. Themistocles was a lawyer by training, recall. Now, of course, there were other socio-political reasons why Athens was resistant to the policy agenda of Themistocles, and we'll get to those before too long today, but it is useful first to welcome to our stage a figure who stood in stark contrast to the policies and methods of Themistocles. The figure that I'm referring to was named Aristides. He and Themistocles were essentially competing politicians on the Athenian scene. Both of them hoped to emerge from the field of minor leaders to assume the pinnacle of power in Athens. Plutarch tells us how they fought, quote, brilliantly, ranged side by side in the center of the line of battle on the plain of Marathon, and that's really an interesting image to imagine these two political leaders fighting next to each other at the pivotal battle of Marathon. But it's also interesting to realize that their relationship and their antagonism toward one another actually predated Marathon, 
and then the political battles that followed victory on the plains of Marathon. As is usual on the podcast here, I'm really tempted to delve far too deeply into that backstory about why Aristides and Themistocles developed what I think can accurately be called a political rivalry. Sadly, that examination would take a fair amount of time, and it would of course take our focus off the maritime aspects of this period of history. So if you're looking for more backstory on Aristides and Themistocles, I will link to the writings of Plutarch. He wrote about both of these men, but both of these men and their relationships and personal political battles are also more deeply discussed on other podcasts relevant to Greek history. For us, the short and sweet summary is that while both Themistocles and Aristides were ambitious men from a very young age, both of them focused on attaining political sway and influence within Athens, Aristides managed to build a public image as being the champion of justice in all things, to put it simply. Well, Themistocles had a reputation for being a cunning champion of the common man. Themistocles, as we've talked about previously, didn't come from an extremely wealthy or connected family. So his status as the common man's representative was built brick by brick over the course of his life in Athenian politics. Aristides, on the other hand, did come from a family of moderate wealth, and early in his life he fell in with the aristocratic circles of Athens. By the time that Athens had reached a crossroads of sorts after the victory at Marathon, Aristides had well and truly become the politician of the aristocracy, the man who wanted to maintain the Athenian democracy as it was at that moment. We could call his policy a conservative one if we want to pigeonhole it in the type of uh, political terminology that we would understand easily today. So his conservative policy would have effectively maintained the status quo of Athens. He stood opposed to the idea of building a navy or really focusing on defensive measures, and uh, his conservative policy would have largely kept the power in the hands of the wealthy, landed class of nobles and aristocrats of Athens. The naval policy of Themistocles would have turned that balance of power on its head, since he called for building a 200-strong trireme navy, which would have required the contribution of practically every Athenian man, noble or otherwise. It basically would have placed the poor on an equal footing with the wealthy and the middle class, at least so far as direct contribution to the war effort went. It wouldn't necessarily have changed the structural balance of power in the Athenian democracy, but when rich and poor were sitting on the same bench in the belly of a trireme amidst the heat of battle, the seeds of a new and stronger democracy were being sown. It's a lot more complicated than this, of course, but I think that's enough of a picture to have us getting on for now. So there are these theoretical differences between the policies of Aristides and Themistocles, and they really came down and hinged on one practical issue that has been at the center of 
maybe even every policy debate down through history. That issue is the one of money. The aristocracy opposed Themistocles and his naval policy on grounds of self-preservation, sure, but they also knew that when it came down to brass tacks, a 200-trireme navy would be obscenely expensive. The money had to come from somewhere, and given that they held the majority of the wealth, well, you know the drill. Similar issues still dominate many policy debates today around the world. As I've tried to describe it, this then was the situation in 483 BCE. Xerxes had begun digging that canal to give his fleet a route in avoidance of Mount Athos. In Athens, everyone knew the two main policies being pushed for, and how the proposed naval force would require a windfall to even pay for, let alone the time and effort to build them, man them, and train the newly minted sailors and oarsmen to then form a navy worth sending out to sea. Perhaps the most important consideration, despite the fact that ancient historians don't give us a window into how heavily it factored into the contemporary politics, the Athenians also knew that Persia was hard at work on that canal, and that Persia had intentions of repaying Athens for the outcomes of Marathon, and even for the Athenian involvement in the Ionian Revolt. Right at this exact moment, perhaps with the goddess of fortune and prosperity, Tyche, smiling down upon them, the Athenians struck a seriously rich vein of silver, deep within the mines at Lorium. This fortunate windfall was timely in the eyes of Themistocles, but when he proposed to use the money for his pet project, Aristides was right there to remind the assembly that tradition and custom ought to govern the decision about how to handle the surplus revenue from the mine. His argument to stick with tradition was no doubt strengthened by the fact that the Athenian custom in situations like this, where surplus mining revenue was present, the custom here was to take that extra silver and divide it evenly for distribution among all the citizens. The silver vein they'd struck was so large that the portion allotted to each citizen amounted to ten drachmas. And to put that amount in context, here are a few lines from Professor John Hale's inimitable book, Lords of the Sea. He writes, quote, The sum was enough to buy a new riding cloak, an exceptionally fine painted cup, or even an ox. It was a negligible bonus for men in the city's upper three citizen classes, the three or four hundred richest landowners, the twelve hundred horsemen, and the 10,000 hoplites who donned their bronze armor to fight in the phalanx. But for the great mass of Athens' landless workers, the citizens known as Thetes, ten drachmas represented a major supplement to their scanty incomes. So then, as we stand here, it's rather interesting to me that we've kind of cast Themistocles as the politician of the common man, while Aristides was the spokesman for the aristocracy. But in the debate that followed this silver strike at Lorium, Themistocles had to argue against the distribution of silver, 
he had to argue against a major supplement to the pocketbooks of the everyday man. He knew deep in his heart, I would argue anyways, that if he was allowed only to enact his naval policy, that all Athenians would then see the fruits of that investment, how it would empower the common man beyond what a one-time ten drachma dole out would do. But in the moment of that decisive assembly meeting in 483 BCE, Themistocles and Aristides were forced to advocate their positions in front of the people and then submit themselves to the outcome of the ensuing vote. It's arguable that Aristides had the easier job that day, since the common man would likely have been heavily tempted by visions of what he could do with those ten drachmas. It seems unlikely that Aristides would have mentioned the Persian threat in front of the assembly that day, since he wouldn't have wanted to make a point which could favor his opponent's policy. But surprisingly enough, Themistocles didn't mention Persia that day either, at least not that we can tell from the surviving records. We read that he instead chose to focus on an enemy of Athens that we discussed back in episode 33, where we did a run-through of the so-called Heraldless War, and the roots of the enmity between Athens and her island neighbor Aegina. Aegina had been the more powerful maritime force in that region long before 483, and if you recall, we described how the two city-states had traded seaborne raids and even faced off against one another in open naval conflict. The sources aren't completely clear, and the debate still goes on today, of course, but it's possible that Athens and Aegina did continue to skirmish and goad each other even after Marathon, all the way down through 483 BCE here, when the silver strike led to the Athenian debate about how to spend the surplus silver. Ultimately, we don't have a transcript of what was said at the assembly meeting when Themistocles and Aristides argued opposing sides. Plutarch casts Themistocles in a somewhat harsh light. He says that, quote, Themistocles whipped up the voters' dislike and jealousy of Aegina, close quote. But this type of argument as a tactic to sway the masses toward a given political view is, well, I think it's one of the oldest in the book, if I had to wager. The reality is that most of the Athenian citizens in the lower ranks probably were jealous of and antagonistic toward Aegina, and that Themistocles knew he could take advantage of this regional rivalry to further his own ends. That being said, it is also reasonable to take the view that while no one explicitly stated it as so, that many of the common Athenians could read between the lines of the debate between Themistocles and Aristides that day. It was known that Persia was constructing a canal and a fleet to invade Greece again, so maybe Themistocles didn't even need to bother broadcasting that the true intent behind his desire to build the Athenian fleet was to defend Athens against Persia, and not to settle the regional rivalry with Aegina. In addition, some have theorized that the common voters of Athens may have had a vested self-interest in voting to build the Athenian fleet, 
possibly a bigger interest than they would have had in the potential dole that they would have received. This theory rests on the idea that a rapid buildup of a large trireme fleet would have taken away their chance for the one-time dole from the silver mines, but it would instead have funneled all of that money into the shipbuilding industry. So the common man of Athens may have seen the potential for work in the shipyards as a preferable alternative to just a one-time handout. This is not to mention, then, the fact that they would also have had jobs aboard those ships in the campaigns to follow, almost certainly so, since the vast majority of all the Athenian men would be needed to man the rowing benches. There is a related but uh, separate debate about whether these men would have been paid to serve aboard the Athenian triremes during this war with Persia, given the dire circumstances and the general Greek idea that citizens had a duty to defend the polis in such times. But we do know that in later years, Athenian rowers could expect to receive a daily pay for their work aboard the ships. We're just not sure if it occurred at this earlier date or not. So we can just theorize about all the various thoughts that were going around the voting blocks in the assembly that day. We can also theorize about the arguments that Themistocles and Aristides would have made as they stood in front of these voting blocks. What we do know for certain, though, is that the vote ultimately came out in favor of the arguments of Themistocles. As the Athenian citizens filed out of the assembly that day in late 483 BCE, all of Athens knew that their focus would now turn toward churning out triremes at as fast a pace as they could manage. There is a bit of a gray area in regard to how many triremes the assembly approved for construction at this first vote. I should point this out, I think. Plutarch says that with the money from the silver mines that 100 triremes were built, but we know that Themistocles had been calling for double that number in the years prior to the vote. We also know that later on, Athens did indeed have at least 175 triremes at their disposal, so they had to have built at least 100 new ships pursuant to this vote. It has been portrayed that there was still strong enough dissent from the camp of Aristides that uh, at this vote related to the Lorium silver mine strike that they uh, had to compromise and promise to build only 100 ships instead of 200 at first. The theory goes that this compromise was later reversed and that another additional amount of triremes were built. It's been a little difficult to find concrete enough proof in the ancient sources to say either way how it played out. That's why the debate still exists today. But uh, it's plausible that only a hundred were built pursuant to the first vote and that more were built down the line. I say that it's plausible because in the months following the initial vote and when the construction of the first round of triremes started, Aristides was ostracized from the city. Uh, historian Tom Holland portrays this ostracism in 482 as the pivotal event 
that gave Themistocles free reign to then implement his grand naval vision without the opposition that had been coming from Aristides, the aristocratic figurehead who had been his foil up to that point. Tom Holland implies that it was after Aristides was ostracized that Athens then decided to keep on building triremes over the 100-ship limit up to their ability to build triremes, I suppose. It is possible that uh, more ships were built after Aristides was ostracized. It had to have taken a while to build all of these ships, given how many they did end up with. I think this theory gives a slightly more dramatic flair to the plot of the story, but we really don't know the specifics of how the timeline did play out, ultimately. We know that the vote in 483 favored building a trireme fleet, and we know that in early 482, Aristides was ostracized. Beyond these dates, the ancient sources don't include much detail about the process or the activity of rapidly constructing the Athenian trireme fleet, which is an unfortunate omission for us. But let's now see if we can at least get an idea of how things would have proceeded in theory. As I believe was said, we don't know specifically the rate at which these new triremes would have been built. We know only in a rough sense the number of ships that Athens had in the mid-480s, and then the number of ships that were said to have been present at the naval battles against Persia in 480 BCE. Various other city-states did contribute ships to these campaigns, but it's generally agreed that at the naval battle of Artemisium, Athens contributed about 125 ships, while later at Salamis, the number from Athens alone was nearer to 180. So, in the less than three years between the vote that favored the Themistoclean vision and then the ultimate Persian invasion and the ensuing battles, it seems that Athens built at least 150 new triremes to supplement the handful that they had from their previous ventures. We did talk a fair bit back in episode 30 about how this all would have been funded and how the Athenian government went about transmutating the silver that they had mined from Lorium into a fleet of war machines. Rather than dive back into the minutiae, I think we can paint a broad picture of how this all played out by taking another paragraph from John R. Hale. If you do want a recap of what I had to say about it, then episode 30 is the place. We also talk about trireme uh, battle tactics and the construction of the ships and their uh, physical abilities and size, dimension. We talk about all that type of stuff in episode 30, so I'll mention it as we go through these upcoming episodes about the actual battles. It's probably not in as much depth, so back to episode 30 if you want to recap there. I do also highly recommend Dr. Hale's book, Lords of the Sea, for an engaging narrative of how Athens went about this rapid buildup of her trireme fleet. He starts prior to the Greco-Persian Wars and carries it all the way through the Peloponnesian War. So it's a very great book if you want a wonderfully written 
view into uh, how ships played a role in ancient Greece as a whole. For us today, though, the summative paragraph in his narrative is the one that follows. He writes, quote, From the mines of Lorium, the silver had flowed through the city's mint, where it was transformed into the coins that bore the emblems of Athena. Then, as Themistocles had planned, the river of silver broke into a hundred separate streams, passing through the hands of the wealthy citizens who organized the great shipbuilding campaign. During the months of shipbuilding, the silver was dispersed to all those workers, from loggers to shipwrights to bronze smiths, whose efforts made Themistocles' vision a reality. In the end, the money returned to many of the same citizens who had voted to give up their ten drachmas for the common good. By the time 100 new triremes gleamed in the sunlight at Phaleron Bay, the Athenians were already a changed people. In the great contest that lay ahead, as they hazarded their new ships and their very existence in the cause of freedom, their sense of common purpose would grow stronger with every trial and danger. Now, I'm a little bit hesitant to describe Dr. Hale's writing and portrayal of the whole ordeal as romantic, because much of what he says and describes is firmly rooted in reality. This is how the fleet was built up, and it's almost without doubt that the Athenian people did find a stronger bond in their common purpose of defending their homeland against the Persian invasion. I personally do still get a bit of a romantic vibe from reading Dr. Hale's um, angle on the Greco-Persian War here, but it carries with it a very positive and uplifting perspective on the role that ships and a naval policy played in the development of Athens as a city-state. All in all, I really love this perspective on things, and I think that anyone interested in the time period and these events would be missing out if they missed Dr. Hale's book, Lords of the Sea, as I said. I have links on the show notes for most of these Greco-Persian War episodes because it's been a constant source for me, so you can find those there. I'm also working on a review of the book for the website, so you can find it there or simply on Amazon as well. Alright, we've really just scratched the surface in our discussion about how much of an undertaking it would have been for Athens to build a trireme fleet in less than three years. But the next matter, of course, for Athens was training her men to be serviceable sailors in putting that fleet to effective use. It's one thing to build it, it's another thing to actually use the ships to take out the Persian ships during the course of a heated battle. These next few relevant lines are taken from Thucydides, and technically they're related to the Peloponnesian War that he wrote about, but the sentiment assuredly remains the same. In this uh, paragraph, Pericles, the uh, statesman of Athens at that later date, he's arguing before the city why he thinks that they have an upper hand in their conflict with Sparta as it occurred in the 430s BCE, and he points specifically to the seamanship that Athens had developed by that time in her history. So he says that, quote, 
familiarity at sea is not an easy acquisition. He then asks the people, um, more than 50 years after the Persian Wars, remember, he asks them, quote, If you who have practiced since the Persian Wars have still not brought your skill to perfection, how can men achieve anything who are farmers? He's talking about the Spartans here. He goes on, The fact is that sea power is a matter of skill, like everything else, and it is not possible to get practice in the odd moment when the chance occurs, but it is a full-time occupation, leaving no moment for other things. So, although we have no accounts of the drills and training that took place back in 482 and 481 BCE where we still are, we know that these types of activities must have occurred, and on quite a large scale, given the number of triremes that Athens was churning out. We can reasonably imagine an Athenian city-state that was almost wholeheartedly focused on building ships in the shipyards of Piraeus, although we know that despite his continued work, the shipyards at Piraeus had still not been completely fortified in 481 BCE. They wouldn't be completed until at least a decade after the Persian Wars, in fact. As 481 BCE ticked on, it's doubtful that many Athenians who worked in the shipyards or who were training aboard these gleaming new triremes, it's doubtful to me that they would have still labored under the assumption that these ships were being built and prepared for war with Aegina. This is what Themistocles had claimed initially, sure, but by late 481, everyone had heard the news that Persia was busy digging that canal through Athos. Now, there is a lot of detail that Herodotus writes about um, related to the other aspects occurring during this build-up to the war. I've just elected to leave most of these out of our podcast here. I always feel bad cutting details out, of course, but you know the drill by now, I'm sure. One thing that I might not have recommended so far, though, is just to read Herodotus for yourself if that's never been an achievement of yours. Many English translations are freely available online. I think there are some free ones even in audiobook form if you prefer listening to things. So I'd encourage you to seek those out as well. Nevertheless, some of those details that I'm going to leave out here are include details about the Persian preparation for war, marshalling the land forces on both sides. There's even a lot of talk about the psychological tricks that Persia tried to pull in order to intimidate the Greeks. The chiefest among these may have been the fact that Xerxes again dispatched heralds to make the rounds in Greece and demand earth and water from each city-state. We discussed previously how this was a symbolic submission to Persian authority if a city were to give earth and water to the Persian herald. Now, many, many Greek city-states did just that this time around. They didn't want to chance even the idea of resisting what was sure to be a Persian onslaught. The psychological aspect of this move comes into play when we see that Xerxes dispatched these heralds to every Greek city-state, save two. He told the heralds to bypass Athens and Sparta, 
For these two cities, there would be no chance to submit. Their fates were already sealed in the mind of Persia's king. This being the case, the Athenians and Spartans were of course hopeful that they could recruit the other major Greek city-states to take their side on the eve of war. The resulting meeting took place in the autumn of 481 BCE, in either Corinth or in Sparta, depending on which historian's theory you lean toward backing. It makes sense that it would have taken place in Corinth, to me, anyway, given the more central location of this city, but there are more points at issue in the debate, and they're really not worth the time to get wrapped up in right now. What is worth thinking about is the reality that many of the cities that showed up to this meeting were probably still at war with one another even, let alone with the Persians. Aegina, as we know, had no love lost toward Athens. Sparta, as well, had ill-treated her neighbors on numerous occasions, so the mere act of bringing many cities together to discuss cooperation was a sign of the severity of their situation. I say that many cities showed up to this meeting, but that might actually be an overstatement on my part. Taking into account both the mainland Greek city-states and the numerous colonies and more removed locales, which... Um, Greek mother city-states had colonized and brought into the sphere of the Greek world, there were well over 500 city-states, probably closer to 700. For all of those city-states that could be considered Greek cities or colonies, only about 35 sent representatives to this meeting in Corinth, which is of course a discouraging sign for the resistance from the very beginning. The first problem, then, was that only 35 Greek cities sent representatives. The second problem was in getting those 35 or so to even cooperate. They surprisingly all agreed to put aside their differences, to focus on the greater common good of them all, which, of course, was a prudent choice from an outsider's perspective. With that agreement settled, the Congress of Greek cities elected to take two main steps. The first was to send spies to Sardis to try and ascertain the strength, makeup, and maybe even the strategy of the Persian army and navy, which is a bold and risky step to be sure. This move, perhaps predictably, backfired when the spies were captured and Xerxes pulled the whole psychological move of letting them see whatever they wanted and then letting them return to Greece just to tell their fellow Greeks about the enormous size of the Persian army and navy. The second main step that the Greek Congress chose is a venture that is more relevant to us, and it'll send us on a venture west of Greece to an island that we've visited a fair bit already, but in other contexts. The Greek Congress at Corinth adjourned in the autumn of 481, as they decided to send messengers around the Greek world to try and recruit allies to the cause. The one ally above all others that they hoped would join the cause was a city that had originally been established by Corinth as a colony on the island of Sicily, 
located there on the crossroads of trade in the central Mediterranean. The city-state of Syracuse was their prize recruit, and Herodotus tells us that Syracuse was the most powerful Greek city outside those who had already joined the alliance. Now, in previous episodes, we have talked a bit about the growth of Greek colonies on Sicily and how they influenced the courses of trade in that area. Given the relative power and position of Syracuse, the city had a history of conflict with Carthage and her allies in that region of the Mediterranean. The merchants of Greece and Carthage both vied for profit in southern Italy and the Tyrrhenian trade network there. To hopefully keep a long story from getting too long, a tyrant named Galon had rapidly taken control of Syracuse, the city, after he had initially been the leader of a tribe in Sicily and then built an effective military on the island. He was a brilliant soldier and military leader, but he had a character trait that I would wager could be found in high concentrations if we analyzed only the subset of humans who either self-identify as or have had the label of tyrant given to them by general recognition of the people around them. Galon was a tyrant with an ego to match the word, as we can see in this rough approximation of the negotiations that happened when Athens and Sparta, their envoys when they arrived in Syracuse. Their request for aid was unsurprisingly couched in terms that evoked the menace of Persia's potential invasion. They said that without Syracusan assistance, Greece would be weaker. If Xerxes conquered Greece, he would obviously come west and want to take over Syracuse and Sicily. Galon, of course, replied with a typical parry. He asked the Greeks, where, where have you guys been in the past when I asked you for help when I was fighting Carthage? It seems right from this initial exchange that nothing is going to happen, really, but for a brief moment, the sun broke through the clouds, and the Greeks must have thought that Galon was going to consent to join their cause. They might have thought this momentarily because of how Herodotus portrays Galon's response his attempt to be the bigger man, you might say. Herodotus writes this. This is what he says that Galon replied to the emissaries from Athens and Sparta. He says, quote, Though I have received dishonorable treatment from you, I shall not behave the same way. Instead, I am ready and willing to come to your aid by supplying you with 200 triremes, 20,000 hoplites, 2,000 cavalry, 2,000 archers, 2,000 slingers, and 2,000 light troops to serve among the cavalry. This proposal must have had the Greek entourage pinching themselves. 200 extra triremes to add to the naval fleet, not to mention all the other land forces that Galon promised. This was a massive number compared to what they'd already assembled, especially in terms of the ship contribution. The problem is that when they pinched themselves to see if it was real, it must have broken the spell, because Galon paused for a second, maybe he had a smirk on his face, and then he dropped the kicker condition on them. He said, quote, But I promise to do all this 
only on the condition that I shall be the commander and leader of the Hellenes against the barbarian. Under any other conditions, I would neither go myself nor send others. So for all of that, they bantered back and forth. He, he did actually back off a little bit after making this crazy proposal that he had to lead everyone. He backed off and consented to let Sparta lead the land forces, but he still insisted on being the commander of the navy, and as you might imagine, Athens refused to consent to this condition. Athens viewed the fleet as her own, and pretty much rightly so, I would say, given their investment. Herodotus records Athens as saying, quote, if we yield our leadership to the Syracusans, it would then be all for nothing that we have acquired the greatest naval force of all the Hellenes. At this point, I kind of picture Galon realizing that he's not going to be able to wedge his way into control of the Greek military. He concludes this, he asks them to leave Sicily and to report to their countrymen that the Greek army had rejected the best allies that they could have hoped to acquire. Pretty cold words from this tyrant of Syracuse, although they may actually be accurate. Syracuse would have really helped the Athenian and the Greek mainland cause against Persia. Moving on now, it was probably in the fall or the winter of 481 BCE that the Greek Congress had met and then gone on their travels to try and recruit allies to the cause. It was during this time also that they had been caught trying to spy on Xerxes and his forces in the Far East. So then let's fast forward to the spring of 480 BCE, because it is at this point that Xerxes and his forces are poised at the Hellespont, ready to cross into Europe, or what we now think of as Europe anyway. We've talked a lot about the Hellespont and the thin strip of water that separates Asia from Europe, and we mentioned how Darius had built a pontoon bridge, not over the Hellespont, but over the Bosporus, the northern strait that leads into the Black Sea. His son Xerxes, though, chose to build two pontoon bridges. His were constructed over a portion of the Hellespont where they had to span a distance of about 1,300 yards. In other figures, this is 3,600 feet, or about 1.1 kilometers. So no matter how you measure it, it's no small distance. Herodotus goes into really surprising depth of detail about the engineering and the construction of these boat bridges. So do read book 7 of the histories if you're curious about the detail. I'm going to focus just on the ships that he says Xerxes used in the bridges, just because um, a little bit of his description sounds odd to me for some reason. Herodotus says that the Persians used pentaconters and triremes as they built the bridges, and this was a process that took months at least, potentially even as long as they took in digging that canal across the Athos Peninsula. Nevertheless, it seems odd to me that the Persians would have used ships as costly as triremes to serve as floating supports for bridges to get the land army from Asia over to Europe. Surely they could muster enough merchant vessels to build at least 
one bridge from those, I would think anyway, even if they did have to use some pentaconters as well. There are separate issues about whether triremes could feasibly even serve in this capacity as uh, supports for a bridge. This is given their narrow beam and the fact that the lowest ore ports on a trireme didn't have much clearance from the water to begin with, and that's without added weight on top of the ship. I'm sure the triremes wouldn't have had a full contingent of oarsmen inside them, if they had had wooden planks and cables stretched across the decks. So I can imagine a scenario where an evenly distributed weight across a long distance like this, it would be possible even on the decks of triremes, I suppose. But again, as I said early on today, I'm not an engineer. In the broad sense, it just seems to me a very prosaic use to put the most advanced naval weapons of their day to. But I suppose that everything floating could have been mustered for the purpose of building these bridges, and then all of it just disassembled afterwards. That's, however, the other problem for me, because it's in reading Herodotus where we see that once the Persian army had taken an entire month to cross the two bridges and arrive fully in Europe, he indicates that the Persians just left the fully intact bridges there in case they needed to use them again on the way back out of Greece. He also clearly depicts the ships of the Persian navy sailing across the Hellespont at the same time that the Persian army was crossing the bridges. They had apparently planned to meet up at a predetermined point in Europe after they had all crossed. So if Herodotus was right and triremes were used in the pontoon bridges, then it must have been a number in addition to the already enormous naval fleet that the Persians had assembled. So to me, this fact is just another demonstration of the impressive power of the Persian forces. All right, um, the last item to mention in relation to these bridges involves the weather and how it affected them. We saw early on today that Xerxes had his people dig a canal across the Athos Peninsula because he feared the wrath of the storms in that area, as he should have done based on prior experience. The Hellespont too had storms, which he may or may not have known about, but Herodotus shares a story about how the first iterations of these pontoon bridges had been fully completed, they stretched across the Hellespont, waiting patiently to serve their purpose, when a storm descended and broke them up. It's unclear how severe the damage was, objectively speaking, although we surmise that it may not have been a total wreck of the bridges. The builders of those wrecked bridges were beheaded, and their successors were able to repair the damage rather rapidly, so this suggests that much of the bridges may have still been intact after the storm. Still, though, to behead the builders because a fierce storm destroyed portions of the bridge, Xerxes must have been pretty pissed, so maybe the destruction was at a greater level than we might think. We know that Xerxes was pissed, too, because of this final story today that I just can't pass up. 
believe it to whatever degree you wish to believe it. Although I do wonder how Herodotus could have investigated and possibly found out the words that Xerxes ordered his men to say here. Um, but at the same time, it just seems too bizarre to have been made up as well. Herodotus writes that when the storm wrecked these pontoon bridges, Xerxes was so furious that he ordered his men to whip the Hellespont itself, to take bullwhips and to whip the water, to beat it into subjection, I guess. I'm just picturing the Persians going down to the water's edge, whips in hand, beating the water while the king himself looks on from his perch atop a nearby hill where his throne and his royal setup is resting. I'll go ahead and read this portion of Herodotus, actually, just because it is so good. He writes, quote, Xerxes was infuriated when he learned that the bridges were broken. He ordered that the Hellespont was to receive 300 lashes under the whip, and that a pair of shackles was to be dropped into the sea. And I have also heard that he sent others to brand the Hellespont. In any case, he instructed his men to say barbarian and insolent things as they were striking the Hellespont. Bitter water, your master is imposing this penalty upon you for wronging him, even though you had suffered no injustice from him. And King Xerxes will cross you whether you like it or not. It is for just cause, after all, that no human offers you sacrifice. You are a turbid and briny river. Like I said, the sheer outlandishness of this scene does make me suspect that it has some degree of root in truth. To what degree, we can't know, but I really must say, and part of me really wants it to be true as well. All right, I, I think for today this is a decent enough place to push pause on our narrative and for the episode, although I guess it's not a dramatic conclusion per se, because we've taken a pretty winding route to work our way into the spring of 480 BCE. In a way, though, this place is a dramatic pausing point, because we can picture the hordes of Persia having all crossed into Europe, while the Greeks have all returned to Corinth, and realized once and for all that no further aid is going to join them in the fight against Xerxes. There will be one final meeting of the Greek allies, where the issues of leadership will boil over into contention, but next time we'll briefly discuss how they managed to resolve those issues while preparing for their showdown with Persia. The opening salvos of the war itself will be our main focus next time, as we zero in on the naval battle at Artemisium, and consider how the famed Spartan stand at Thermopylae factored into the naval strategy that the Greeks adopted. Naval tactics and the water battles will of course be center stage. I'm really quite excited to get into these discussions finally, and I'm very much so working to get the episodes out more regularly. Uh, I do have a member episode coming out soon as well, so look for that to our crew members, and the same goal of increased regularity applies to member episodes as well. I'm constantly apologizing, I feel like I've been battling some illness recently, which is part of the reason that's put me off from getting this episode out. Hopefully that has passed into the past and will stay there. 
As usual, let me close things out today by thanking our newest members and uh, our newest reviews on iTunes. And then I do want to point to you a podcast where I recently chatted with the host about a handful of topics. So then, an initial thank you to everyone who has left reviews of the podcast in recent weeks. These reviews have come from around the world and represent listeners in Austria, Estonia, and even in Australia. So I'm finding more and more that maritime history is a topic with global relevance. So I greatly appreciate the kind words from our reviewers this month. Many of these reviews were quite kind and encouraging. So thank you everyone, with particular thanks going out to listeners Tyler599, Ruminiti, Raul Ray Zero, Truck Driving Nerd, to whom I extend my well wishes as you travel, Edward487, Irish Spy, uh, who I will add to my contact list should I over the podcast ever come to need spycraft services in the future, then Venemero, Molly Desu, and last but not least, Rob C. from Oz. Thank you so much to each of you again. Reviews like these are very meaningful in keeping the podcast relevant and visible to others around the world who value maritime history. Moving on now, we have continued to expand our crew as well, which is of course always a good thing when you're sailing the digital seas of the modern world. Crew member support helps us keep the lights on, keep the website up, and the audio files hosted so you can access them. It also helps me obtain research materials and things like that. So to thank each of you for that support, I have started producing bonus episodes only for our crew members. And as I said a moment ago, we will have a new member episode out shortly. I'm kind of just picking topics that pique my interest, but uh, I'm always open to suggestions or requests from our crew members for topics that you would like to see covered. So please reach out if you have any requests there. Otherwise, a hearty welcome aboard to Sir Byron, to Chet, to Matt, and to Vic. In the coming days, I'll reach out to any new members to get you set up with access to the member section of the website. I will also skim back through other members to make sure everyone is set up and running smoothly here. For what it's worth, um, and somewhat related, I did also have the privilege to holiday in London and in the UK, and I managed to visit a decent chunk of sites that were chock full of maritime history. So I'm hoping to mail out postcards, uh, some podcast stickers, and maybe some other small things to our members who have been steadfast supporters. I'm also going to post soon a gallery of photos that I took on that trip from the various maritime history-related locales that I had the privilege to tour. All right. The final item for today is to let you know about a podcast called Wonders of the World. It's put together by Drew Varenkamp. The best way to describe this podcast is as a mix of travel tips, history, and culture, but even with some food discussion mixed in as well. It's a great format, and I had the pleasure of joining the podcast to discuss the monsoon winds of the Indian Ocean and the development of maritime trade in that region. Um, we got into some talk about the spice trade between India and Rome. 
we talked about the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea a bit, all in a bid to give context to Drew's discussion about the backwaters of Kerala. So if that sounds interesting to you, I will link to his podcast on the show notes for today's episode, and you can find it easily that way. He covers many other wonders of the world and gets a great blend of history and culture and travel into his podcast, so please do check that out. All right, I have gone far too long today, so let me sign off by simply saying, next time we witness the Battle of Artemisium. Thank you for joining today, everyone, and until next time, fair winds and following seas. Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>